This is Two Guys in a Bible. This is a weekly conversation on theology, culture, and God's word. My name is Dylan Keniston. I am joined, uh, as always, by uh, Eric Leupold. Eric, how are you doing this afternoon? Doing great. Yourself? I'm doing well. I'm actually really excited about this topic. So I was not thinking that we were going to do what we were going to do today in the episode. We have a very special episode planned for you today, um, doing something a little bit different than than the typical format. So something you know, we've had interviews, we've had you know topics that we just kind of riff on for a little while, and it's fun. Um, but today we, there was a there was an instance of an interview between a chap named Ben Shapiro and mm-hmm. another chap named Sam Harris. And these are two names that are somewhat sizable. They're kind of thought leaders in their own circles. Um, you know, Ben Shapiro is kind of more on the political uh, ide- uh, political ideology for conservatism, and is you know he has a very massive audience uh, among, especially young conservatives. Oh, very, because he's very young. Yeah, he's in his thirties. Well, and, and his following too is a lot of like young college. He speaks at a lot of college campuses about yeah. uh, conservative political philosophy. Sam Harris, uh, by contrast, uh, not by contrast, but he has a very large following as well. He does. But he he speaks on behalf of atheism. So Ben Shapiro is a devout Jew, uh, Orthodox Jew, I think. That's yes, right. And um, and Sam Harris. Is a devout atheist. And actually, and devout he's considered atheist. one of the four horsemen of the new atheist. Yeah, exactly. One of the four. Along with Christopher Hitchens, who died not too long ago, and Richard Dawkins. Yeah. So he's up there with them. Who's the fourth? I honestly don't know. I, I forget the fourth. <laughs> I'll have to look it I up. But yeah, it's like the, the, there is there is a fourth somewhere out there. Um, but anyway, so these two chaps sat down and uh, or Ben sat down with uh, Harrison had an interview with him on his Sunday uh, special show. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this uh, interview that Ben did with Sam Harris. I actually think Harris had Shapiro on his podcast as well. I think Harris has a podcast. Shapiro, everybody, everybody has a podcast. Everyone these days. in their everyone in their grandmother has a podcast. Right. Yeah, exactly. So we're no special. We're, we're, not, we're special. not that special. Um, but I think this is the one where Ben interviewed Sam. So yeah, um, and also just a little brief background on it. I was like, we're not our podcast. We're not up with these guys as far as like oh, true story. The, I mean, the following and stuff. I mean, I, I'd love to get there one day, but. But, you know, someone might ask, hey, why are you guys doing this? Like, why, why are you trying to play with the big dogs or comment on their, their discussion or their debate? Um, but there's a little bit of context to it because I, one of my coworkers uh, was a, is, a, is a hardcore atheist, and he's a big fan of Sam Harris. And he and I got into a, a good discussion at work uh, and talking about morality and the origins of morality and evolution and science and all all those things and he he sent me this uh podcast interview that ben shapiro did uh on on facebook he messaged it to me and said this is what i believe what sam harris says is what i believe i was like okay well i need to i need to take a look at it consider it and see how i could respond sure as a christian so uh, i don't know if my coworker is going to listen to this episode i'll Maybe I'll encourage him to do so, but, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it, so there's a reason behind this, but hopefully we can do more of such things in yeah. the future. Yeah, I mean, this has been fun. It's been fun to prepare. Uh, it's, it, you know, both of these guys are just really, really thoughtful, and so to have a chance to kind of engage with some of those ideas, it, it's always enriching. Yeah. Yeah. So they cover a lot of topics, and I don't know if we're going to be able to get through everything no, that they no say. This uh, Ben Shapiro-Harris discussion is about an hour long uh and so we don't want this podcast to go forever our own episode so i mean we'll, we'll, we have a couple clips here and there that we want to pick out um i mean how do you want to how do you want to do it you just want to 
Let's dive right in. So, right I, in. so here's here's kind of the format, right? We have a couple. Of, so as Eric mentioned, we have a couple of segments uh, prepared. Uh, actually, Eric does. We're just, I'm just going to be riffing off of the segments he wants to talk about. But that's actually really good. So we have a little setup here where we're going to play that segment and then let's just discuss it. Yeah, right? we will. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll talk about kind of how uh, what that might look like from from what we hope is kind of a Christian yeah. perspective. And uh, one of the first clips I'm going to play is from about 19 minutes in. Um, but uh, to give our listeners uh, a little bit of a background, so they're talking about, uh, for the most part, they hit a lot of different topics, but they spend most of the time talking about the, uh, the grounding of uh, morality, uh, how to define good and evil, how to determine what is good and what is evil. And so Ben Shapiro spends a lot of the time asking asking sam harris like hey what how do we get there like how do we figure out what's right what's wrong in this well from from sam harris's atheistic perspective right so uh this uh segment that i wanted to get on actually it's about uh is it yeah 19 minutes in is i think when they start talking about uh morality there so you cool if we jump in there let's dive right in all right here we go let's see how this how this works about on a daily basis when I'm covering politics. Yeah. So uh, since we get to do this, let's do it. So uh, let's talk about um, you know where you think morality comes from. So in the religious view, obviously, there, there are certain things that I believe are capable of understanding by any sentient human being. So I don't believe that all human beings in the absence of religion are immoral people who go around murdering their neighbors and, and raping their sisters. Uh, I think that, yeah. that, and in fact, this is pretty well embedded in even Judaic philosophy, the idea that there is a sort of natural law theology where you, as just a normal person, know not to kill people and know not to steal and know to set up courts of law. This is what they call the seven, the seven commandments to Noah. Um, but the idea is that anyone can basically discover these things. And there are universals across culture about you're not supposed to murder your brother. Um, but the, the biblical reading is that to reach a more sophisticated level of morality that leads to a sort of right-based society we see here, you at least need the, the catalyzing enzyme of... of a, Judeo, a Judeo-Christian religion in order in order to get here. That, that would, I think, be the, the most rationalistic argument on behalf of Judeo-Christian values. Hey, but where is here again? Uh, here would be a civilization that values individual rights above the values of the collective, uh, that, right. that says that, that people are to be treated, to use the biblical phrase, as made in the image of God, that we should treat individuals as made in the image of God. Uh, that, that, that does not happen in the absence of a Judeo-Christian value system. That's, that's the religious argument. Uh, so the and and which although is, that is more of a historical argument, that, 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 right? That, that's what I'm saying. It's a rationalistic argument because the, the the deeply religious argument would be God said so, so do it, right? But that's not the argument that I think is the most compelling because that only works if you believe in God and if you believe in revelation. So that's not the argument that I tend to make because I, I don't find it intellectually convincing. It's an argument from authority, which of course is not particularly convincing. So I tend to make the historical argument, which is that history brought us to that that the reason we are at this point in history is because without that particular catalyzing enzyme, you don't get what you have here, which is why the West and Western civilization crop up in a Judeo-Christian system, but don't crop up in, for example, Islamic countries, and Islam's been around for a thousand years. So, oh, pause there for a second. Yeah, because right. that, that was Ben Shapiro's, uh, his own perspective Yeah. Uh, on the origins of morality, and he hit on a couple topics. Uh, two, two of them that came to mind are the... Uh, argument from authority so he doesn't particularly like to use the argument that god said so so therefore we should we should do it um 
And okay, fair enough, whatever. I, I understand that a non-believer is not going to be convinced by that particularly. But he did also appeal to this idea of, well, I guess you could call it natural law or general revelation that everyone or most cultures know that it's wrong to uh, to kill, to, to murder, uh, you know, your brother or something like that. Yeah. So it seems like he's a he's 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 connecting it to what we you and I would be familiar with like in Romans chapter 2 mm. where Paul talks about that even the gentiles have the work of the law written on their hearts so in the book of Romans uh Paul says hey the Jews have the law and the gentiles even though they don't have the special revelation of the of the of the bible of the of the Hebrew bible they have a conscience that convicts them and it shows the work of the law in them. Hmm. So what are your thoughts on what Shapiro said there? Yeah, so I, you know, I think when we talk about what does it mean to uh, convince someone, right? So we say like it's an argument from authority. If you say God said so, so do it. And he doesn't find that particularly mm-hmm. convincing. Um, I think what a person finds convincing yeah. Is, is going to depend on w- their presuppositions going in, right? What do they believe going in? So you, you might have a Christian who says, you know, I believe that, you know, let's say you, you come up with an apparent contradiction in the Bible, right? And you present this to a Christian. So a Christian has a presupposition that God is God. And so if there's an apparent contradiction in scripture, it can be remedied. It can, there's, there's some kind of explanation for it. That's the presupposition behind the position. So is that going to be convincing to the Christian if there's some apparent contradiction in scripture? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Well, similarly, the atheist has presuppositions as well. That's so true. if you presuppose that um, there is no God, and the way Harris, I think, is, is going to define atheism is such that it, he's not saying that um, in the str- you can't prove a universal negative, right? So he's not saying there is n- we're absolutely certain there is no God, and that's the basis of his worldview. What he's saying is, I'm beginning with the presupposition that there is no God, and I'm looking for evidence that there is God, and whatever evidence has been posited to me, I find unconvincing, mm-hmm. right? So his atheism is saying that evidence to me is unconvincing. Of course. Right? So... So, but that's already kind of sewn the game up, right? If you if you grant that presupposition that you you have to start with there not being a God, yeah. then you've already sold the farm in a sense. You've that's already true. granted the presupposition to say now the burden of proof is on the Christian to say there is a God. Where whereas I, I I don't know that that's so. I mean, I'm I'm fairly confident in saying that's the wrong <laughs> presupposition yeah. to start. You've already you've given away the game at that point. Um, yeah. Actually, so if you if you wouldn't mind if you go to uh, the nine minute mark, okay, real quick. So what we just heard was much of Ben's argument is along something along these lines. Go to no, uh, nine minutes and fifty seven seconds. Much of Ben's argument is along these lines. Judeo Christian religious thought has brought us Western civilization. And he basically is like, look, Western civilization has been a a net positive for the world. It brought us a society based on individual rights. It brought us uh, prosperity. We're a free people. So he's kind of using this historical argument to say, look, the Judeo-Christian heritage is something that is good. Yeah. Um, So what I think is a, a little bit unfortunate about that 
line of argumentation is that it has nothing to do with whether either Judaism or Christianity are true. And Harris points that out in his response. So, I mean, we didn't hear his response, but Harris basically gives a two-pronged response. First, he says on the historical front, look, you're cherry-picking the data, right? You're, yeah. you're, you're, if you look at one point in history, it looks really good for the Judeo-Christian heritage. If you pick another point in history, it looks really, really bad. Now, I don't, I don't find that a particularly compelling response from Harris, but his second response was pretty compelling. He says, this is a genetic fallacy. He says, even if we granted that respect for individual rights came from a Judeo-Christian tradition— it doesn't mean it can only come from there. Yeah, I remember him saying that. Or is best gotten from there, right? Yeah. So, and then, you know, Ben comes back and basically says, we haven't seen it any other way. But again, none of that impinges on whether the belief system is true. So you can get, it's possible to get good results from a bad system. And and that's the level at which I kind of wanted to see more engagement. But let's hear it at 9.57, we're yeah. going to play it until uh, the 11 minute and 23 second mark. This is really, I, I think... Just like we heard what Ben's argument is, where he's kind of staked his flag, this is where Sam Harris stakes his flag. This is what I take to be the heart of his point. Let's okay, go see. ahead and play it. Yep. Intellectually honest, non-smear merchant approach to analyzing what we think we know and why we think we know it. And those principles of, of rationality and an empirical engagement with, with uh, reality uh, simply are not uh, susceptible to an identity or, e or even a political interpretation. I mean, this is just, this is why reason is the only thing that scales. I mean, if, if I have a good enough argument based on clear enough evidence, it should persuade you if you are uh, you know, being reasonable, no matter what your background, no matter who your parents were, no matter how you were mistreated or not as a child. You know, if we build a, re a, re a reasonable robot, it should be persuaded by the right uh, arguments and the right data. So. It, rationality is is the mode of argument where it doesn't depend who you are in order to in order to reach the right answer. I mean, this is this is why prototypical, you know, prototypically reasonable or reason-based topics uh, are so easily divorced from politics and things like mathematics. Right? The people are anyone who's going to argue that mathematics or, or you know, philosophical logic. Is is just you know, a tool of you know political ideology and oppression that just knows nothing about those topics. But it's true that virtually every other place that we really care about facts and and, and you know being right or wrong has that character. It's, it it should be true ultimately of journalism. Yeah, yeah. So so here, what what Harris is getting at is like. It, I take this to be the heart of Harris's, like where he stakes his flag. And he'll reiterate this later on. He will, yeah. And basically what he's saying is, I, I, the way I'm understanding him is, everything factual could in theory be boiled down to syllogisms that are mathematical in their precision and constraint. And that's so whether we're talking about math or the existence of God. Later in the episode, he'll talk about preferences of taste. Do you, know, do you like Chinese food better than Thai food? At the end of the yeah. day, there's some syllogism that explains that phenomenon. Um, he said that reason is the only thing that scales. Reason is the only thing, and he that will scales, reiterate yeah. that at, towards the end of the podcast, and hopefully we'll get to that clip, where basically he'll say, and I find it very interesting because it's basically his God yeah. is reason and rationality, because he'll say that reason is the only thing that gets us out of the subjective and into the objective God's eye view of things. Mm -hmm. It's the only. 
the only way to do that is yeah. through reason. Well, the problem is I don't think he can account for laws of logic and, and reason itself on an atheistic worldview. He doesn't have the metaphysical tools on an atheistic worldview. So he's, you know, some, some atheists talk about different, um, will combat different proofs for the existence of God, so-called proofs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you get the ontological argument or you get the this argument or that, all the classical yeah. arguments in favor of God's existence. And atheists just have a field day with those, right? I think, in, in my view, the most powerful argument in favor of God's existence is the transcendental argument, which is the impossibility of the contrary. He's a necessary being. He's a you and not just not just he as a necessary being in some kind of vague general theistic sense. It's that apart from God, apart from the triune God in Scripture, you can't have laws of logic. Laws of logic. You, right. you can't have reason and rationality, morale. Like any of these, it's not to say that you can't be moral or use laws of logic. Clearly, Harris is a very logical dude, and he's very thoughtful, and he's a, a, a very very nice guy. I'm sure he's you know, behaves in a very moral fashion as he understands it. But the point being that, like, he can't, he's borrowing from the Christian worldview in mm. order to use the laws of logic yeah. that he, and we'll talk a little we'll bit more that about later. that. Yeah. yeah, we'll see a little bit more of that later. Yeah. But I think here, one of the dangers, one of the places where I, where I disagree with Mr. Harris is that I find that he's introducing kind of a flattening of thought where it's kind of oversimplified. Like the existence or reality of certain things is not established the same way in every case. If I ask, you know, is there a computer sitting on top of this desk? I mean, we have to define our terms, but how we measure an answer to that question is not the same as we'd measured a math problem. And you hear him saying, like, if you feed a robot the right data, it should spit out the right answer. It should be persuaded. It should be persuaded. Exactly. And that is presupposing that we are to answer questions about math and about preference of taste and about the existence of God in the same way. It's kind of a flattening of thought. And I, I think that is not quite right. It also fails, he also fails to recognize the sin. Of course, I don't know if he even believes in sin, but he fails to recognize that we can't reason perfectly. Yeah, reason itself is compromised by the effects by of the, the fall. fall yeah. By sin, our minds are affected. We, we make logical mistakes. Our memory is faulty. We have bad assumptions. We're we're persuaded by emotional arguments rather than logical arguments. I mean, we're not like Doctor Spock. Yeah. Who's like perfectly logical, from the Star Trek universe. Well, right? and it, but my point is, even if you were right, think about actually. You just brought up a really great example, which is memory. Is it unreasonable to say, I drank orange juice two days ago with breakfast? Okay, a reasonable robot, what evidence is a reasonable robot going to get to derive the conclusion that that statement is reasonable or factual? What yeah. evidence is there going to be? When you're talking about memory, you're talking yeah. about a past. The robot has to have been there. Right. It has to have been there and seen it and, and experienced it. So, it, so it's not, so there are, my, the point here is that there are categories of, of thought. Mm -hmm. It could be, you know, it could be grammar it could be causation it could be dreams memory love beauty math logical syllogisms and and these are not the same how we draw a conclusion about yeah. these things is not the same yeah all right it makes sense yeah so you know thanks for for bringing up that clip there there uh that did you want to see harris's response to shapiro at the 20 minute mark the yeah. 21 let's do it all right we'll go there all right so we we heard shapiro talk about you know, general, basically natural law, general revelation, and he doesn't like making appeals to authority. Uh, but here, uh, let's see what Harris has to say about it. Morality comes from 
Right. Uh, well, a few points. I mean, one, I, I'm not convinced by that historical argument. I think you can you can cherry pick the data either way and come up with with a different conclusion. And the even if I agreed with it, it wouldn't make the case I think you want to make because it would be an instance of a what's called the genetic fallacy, which is if we even if we granted that that our respect for individual rights, say, came from a Judeo-Christian tradition, it doesn't mean that it can only come from, from there or that it even is best gotten from there. Uh, and, I, and I would say that it actually hasn't come principally from there. And there are many ways, so for instance, you could say that that Christianity in particular was responsible for, in part responsible for the fall of the Roman Empire. Right? So, the, so Christianity undermined uh, the notion that the, 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 the Roman emperor was uh, a god. You know, it, it made it harder to recruit true soldiers and they had to farm it out to mercenaries. And, you know, it eroded, you know, uh, what you might call traditional Roman values. And then, you know, the Western empire fell and, you know, we, we ushered in the dark ages. Um, and insofar as there was a reboot to civilization at that point, it was largely the result of classical, the, the learning and, and philosophical insight of antiquity being preserved by, of all people, in the, the, in the Islamic world, right. right. So uh, I think it's, you can, you can have it any way you want looking at history, but it just doesn't get you there in terms of the, the moral content and, the, and in this case, you know, the political or, or social content coming from the Bible or, or any other religious text. We'll stop there. Uh, so I actually think he's right. No, I, I agree with I, his, I think he's right. <laughs> his criticism of, of Shapiro. Yeah, yeah. Because Shapiro is saying that, hey, you know, look at history. This is the this is how we got individual rights is yeah. only from Judeo-Christian worldview. And Shapiro, I mean, Harris is correct in saying it doesn't have to come. So, which, by the way, I think Shapiro is right that 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 is. So this is why I think when 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 Harris goes to rebut. Shapiro on that question of the history of individual rights coming from some uh, socio-political worldview other than the Judeo-Christian heritage. I think Harris is is I think he's wrong in that. Like I I really do think it's a it's a challenge to to any worldview to have that kind of like in other words Shapiro's right. It's a challenge to any worldview to have that kind of sustainability yes. and, and individual rights other than the Without Judeo-Christian. Without having one. the image of God concept. Yes. Yes. But that does not prove the truthfulness of the system by itself. That is true. That's true. Right? Yeah. So like when when Harris comes back and he says even if you even if I grant that, it doesn't make the point you want to make. Um yeah, that's where he that's that's yeah. that's a that's a fair point. So and and Harris points out the uh you know, the Islamic world preserved a lot of the ancient texts, Aristotle, uh things like that. Uh, and there's truth there's truth in that, although he does oversimplify the fall of the Roman Empire. Yeah. There's uh, way more factors that were involved in that, yeah. and the empire was already well on its decline before the Christ, before Christianity took uh, uh, took a majority uh, view uh, or position in the empire. But uh, I want to jump just a few minutes ahead to uh, basically Harris begins to criticize or critique the. Um, one of his main points is that he has a problem with the idea of revelation. So throughout this discussion. He'll mention several times that um, morality comes from just the conversation that goes on amongst humans. And basically, he'll say that all books, uh, all human writings are of equal value. And so you get to pick and choose what you think is good from this big um, you know, library of human value. And he'll, later on, he'll say 
that if 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 you think that the you know the book of Ecclesiastes mentions something that's that's not found better put anywhere else, then of course take that and and and, and embrace it and welcome that. But he'll go on to say that like the reason why the Bible's not true is because it has obviously evil things in it. So anyways, I'll play the clip and, and get your thoughts on it here, how he criticizes the Bible. Let me start uh, 20. This is why the Bible, in my view, can't be the, the real repository of our moral wisdom in any sense, because when you go to read it, you are forced to ignore certain passages or reinterpret them rather aggressively to conform to what you now in the 21st century have every reason to believe is good or a direction worth going socially. So, you know, it, it is just an inconvenient fact that slavery is endorsed in the Bible. It's, it's explicitly endorsed in the Old Testament, and it's it's certainly not repudiated in the New, right? And, you know, Jesus told you know, slaves to serve their masters and to serve their Christian masters especially well. So there's no place in the Bible uh, where you can get a, a truly compelling case against slavery because the creator of the universe clearly expected slavery to be a human institution. Well, except for abolition. So I just wanted to uh, share that that clip because that's one of his main critiques. Um, and, he'll, and he'll say more later. I'll, I'll play the next clip just a few minutes later where he'll talk about the Bible having no... There are certain parts of it that have no redeeming quality yeah. in them. And that's why he can dismiss the Bible. He doesn't have to embrace it as a whole. He can cherry pick what he likes out of it or what he thinks is good. And he'll say that's why he's got a problem with the idea of revelation, that there's one book that has the final authority and all other books need to be, you know, in submission or, or viewed in light of this hmm. higher book. He wants all books to be the same equivalent that you can therefore pick and choose what you think is good. Yeah. And so to, to complement that, I, I don't know that what, so just to clarify, I, I don't know that what Harris is saying is like, I don't think Harris thinks he is a subjectivist. Now I think ultimately no. he is, but yeah. I don't think he thinks he's a subjectivist. I think the way he's looking at it is here's this, when you think about morality, here's this net aggregate of human knowledge, yeah. right? And if you see something in Ecclesiastes that contributes to that, that's not put better elsewhere, throw it into the pot of that's right. the net aggregate of human knowledge. Add it to the stew. So he, yeah. he's not necessarily saying like, this person likes this ingredient in their pot and that person like that, likes that ingredient in their pot. I think that's ultimately where he leads. But, but what he thinks he's doing is you take all, it's like you add them all up, you add all of the, of the different things that we, that human beings know about stuff, about anything, right? And you aggregate it and that's what we know that's the data so if there's something in ecclesiastes is put better add it to the annals of of, of human thought um, it's interesting it's actually very similar to uh, a darwinian evolutionary view of the origin of life so uh so think think with me for a second there from their perspective the atheist evolutionary perspective you have random random conglomeration of chemical reactions and eventually, out of that comes life. Out of that comes something, quote-unquote, of value, mm. right? And in the same way, he's taking that same model and applying it to morality. Mm. Basically, human dialogue, writing, communication is this big, gigantic conversation, this massive conversations, yeah. this, this huge cauldron, mm. if you will, of stuff. And everything's kind of like 
equal in some regard. But eventually, over time... Good ideas prove themselves. They will rise yep. to the top. We take those good ideas and we put them in... Yeah. We kind of cat... We, we canonize them. That's right. In a sense. So, until some better idea takes its place. That's right. So out of the randomness of human thought and yep. human language will come the orderliness and the beauty of some kind of moral system. Right. So that's basically an evolutionary perspective. Right. Of that. So, uh, yeah. I mean, when he, when he talks about, you know, slavery being in the Bible, and he, he, sells, he says elsewhere that, I mean, this charge has just been, it's like, it's you, pretty bad, you don't want to beat a dead horse, right? It's just, the horse is dead. Um, <laughs> he also elsewhere says that, um, uh, you know, the Bible could be improved without much thought. And, you know, when I heard him say that, I'm like, yeah, that's why there's still so many Jeffersonian Bibles around. <laughs> you know, it, it's just, it's just bad. Um, so, first of all, I want to say, he, Harris, as an atheist, his worldview does not account for the very question of goodness or badness in content. So for him to even make the claim that the Bible could be improved upon, what's your standard? That's right. Improved upon against what? That's, right? Yeah. Now, I, I think there's a there, – there's a, And I want to play that clip whenever I can, I can shortly. Look, he, here's the problem, right, yeah. at, at root. Harris espouses – Neutrality. He thinks he's being objective, objective, yes. and neutral when he when he uses reason and facts and logic to arrive at his conclusions. But so so like, he, you know, we talked earlier about he, he wants to argue that logic and reason are how we have to examine the truth and truth, truth and falsity of a statement, um, and that's you know not just in math but in all kinds of systems. But consider the claim: we must use logic and reason to examine truth claims. Okay, I think Harris would largely agree with that. But here's the million-dollar question. How is that statement itself proven? Yeah. If one responds, well, because it's reasonable, then that's circular reasoning. Yeah. If instead someone tries to defend the claim of using reason and logic to derive morals, you know, in some other fashion, then the statement becomes self-refuting because you're using something other than logic and reason to defend the truth claim that logic and reason must be used to examine truth claims. So... The point isn't to say that we shouldn't use logic and reason. We should. We have to. But the point is, Harris has a pre-commitment, a presupposition, and his thesis isn't itself proven by the empirical experience or logic, but it's that by which he tries to prove everything else. So he, he's not presuppositionally neutral in his approach to factual questions. Oh, yeah, he assumes the laws of logic so, and that, exist. But, and but that's question begging. It is. No, that's question begging, yeah. right? So anyway, no, no, that's fair. That's fair. Um, so here's that clip about the man being able to improve the Bible. I just want to play it for our listeners as well to hear. The fact that you and I could improve the Bible with very little thought, just by taking out, if we just took out the worst passages that have no possible redeemable content this year, or I would argue any other year, right? the Bible's already improved, right? So the fact that we could edit it to anyone's advantage is a problem for the idea that this is the, was written by an omniscient being and not to be superseded by any human effort now or, or generations from now. Uh, and it's just not, it's a problem not just for the Bible, it's a problem for the Quran. Uh, that and this notion of revelation is what gets us there. Now, if you're go going to treat all books as the product of just human minds, you know, brilliant or not, uh, and every shelf in the bookstore or library has the same status with respect to the, just the, the merely mortal provenance of these ideas, 
then it's fine. Then you can do. Then you can pick and choose the best ideas, right? And then you can be you can be slavishly attached to, you know, the Plato's Republic, and just let, that can be your favorite book. But what Revelation gets you is this notion that no, no, this isn't just a book, right? This is this is uh, the product of omniscience on some level, and that ties your hands intellectually because then you are forced to make these acrobatic uh, contortions around passage, passages which clearly have no good application now and didn't even have a, good, have a good application then. And when you view it from the other side, when you think about just, just, how, just how good a book would be if an omniscient being, being wrote it. I mean, that is just, just, it's, it's very easy to see what could be in there that would still astonish us. I mean, or it would just be, it'd be, it's very easy to see what could be in there that would prove, just based on the time of its emergence, that this couldn't have been the product of merely human minds. And there's nothing like that in the Bible. So, oh, <laughs> so first of all, yeah. uh, the idea, I, I, I think he's clearly wrong about the, uh, yeah. the whole, because like the prophecies, yeah. right, right the Typology. There, and the typology, and the, yeah, the beauty of it. The theme of temple, the theme of garden, the theme of redemption. Even the even um, the ones that were where you know in, in the Old Testament, the classical examples of you know uh, God being accused of, of genocide, for example, of cleansing the land. There's typology there yeah. that that's pointing to a final judgment. Yeah, and 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 so it's ex like the Bible is exactly what you would expect yeah. if a transcendental God triune. Uh, was behind it. It is yeah. exactly what harmonized, you harmonized over, over time and authors, of years, all of yeah. the types pointing forward to Christ from Genesis to Revelation. Like it's astonishing the, the to to not see that. Like and again, you know, um, well, those who I mean, Jesus's sheep know his voice. Yeah. Right. And I I I don't know Harris's soul, and I I don't know whether or not he is say. I certainly you know it's something to pray for. Certainly when we dialogue with folks who don't accept the gospel that, you know, they're certainly to be prayed for and, and loved through these things. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's, it's hard to not see yeah. the, the symphonic harmony that is scripture. Yeah. But the big, the big critique I have, and you mentioned it before, is that Harris is, he is using a standard yeah. to judge the Bible. He right. is saying this part of the Bible, particularly slavery, is not redeemable, has no value, right? So what has he just done? He's he's using a standard of measurement, yes. a moral, ethical standard of measurement to judge the Bible. And the question is, where did he get that from? Right. Where did he get his standard of measurement? Because I would argue, from an atheistic evolutionary perspective, the universe could care less about good and evil. There is no such thing as good and evil there just is it just is like there it's an impersonal universe yeah I, and i think you know? that's where so it's like he's eventually going to end up in utilitarianism in one sense or another right will. because he's yeah. he's gonna he's gonna say you know we're, we're deriving it and he gets to this a little bit later in the interview it's derive goodness based off some kind of understanding of happiness or pleasure that's right over against some kind of experience of, I look of forward pain to that or suffering section. yeah yeah so i mean we'll we'll get there but i mean ultimately it it ends in subjectivism because when the utilitarian uh, talks about happiness for the maximum number and how do you of people measure that? as a standard good, yeah, how do you measure it? And, and who's happiness? Yeah. Right? Because different people have different understandings of happiness. And he talks about that. We, we'll, we'll get there. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Harris does give an answer to that question, you know, who's happiness and how do we decide? Um, 
but it's I don't know that he really answers the question. No. Um, so anyway, we'll yeah. come to that. Yeah, but I, and so the next clip I want to play is and this is I meant to, I played this clip to show I think he has a very very I don't know a weak understanding of scripture. Um, uh, let me see if this clip is the one that uh, that plays it. But uh, okay, here we go. Uh, you know, something like the golden rule. I mean, the golden rule predates Christianity, certainly. It's in Leviticus, uh, I think. Uh, and you know, love that neighbor as thyself, in Leviticus. Yeah, and it all, but it, it, it's not unique there, too. I mean, right. there, there, right. you know, there, there are Greek philosophers, I think uh, Epictetus uh, articulated it someplace. The truth is, it predates our humanity on some basic level. You can see evidence of it in monkeys, right? There's, a, there's an expectation of fairness, even in monkeys, right? So, this is a, um, we're running a, a software program that, that is morally relevant to us, uh, that is riddled with bugs, but that predates our humanity. And so we are, so largely what civilization is, what, uh, the, the, the good parts of culture that, that will lead to something that is, that is durable at the level of civilization, uh, largely correct for our merely hominid, merely evolved, merely creaturely, moral intuition so for so i'm gonna stop there for a second so i mean i'll only play that clip just to show i mean he, i think he kind of does lack a little bit of understanding because he said it predates christianity the golden rule yeah what and he says it's from leviticus but it's funny jesus quotes from leviticus yeah with regards to loving your neighbor as yourself now do unto others as you would have done to yourself i i mean i know me personally i have read confucius's works and there is a form of the golden rule in it, but it's actually a little different. It's actually, so I, I, this is something I want to research more in the future. The golden rule as depicted by Jesus in the New Testament is do one to others as you would have done to yourself. It's very positive. It's do this, like do this thing. But the one that I read from Confucius is negative. It says, don't do to someone else what you do not want done to yourself it's actually a different form hmm. of the golden rule and it's purely just a negative one of like basically don't do bad things but yeah. jesus i wonder if that's unique to christianity it might be it might be that that positive of do this is unique to christianity yeah and and different forms too like he mentioned there's there's evidence of of fairness that's demonstrated by monkeys i mean if, you, if you're going to use um uh monkeys as as kind of a a standard for what constitutes fairness. I mean, they're, they're, they can be pretty vicious creatures. I don't think we want to apply that as our standard. <laughs> but that being said, I mean, that notwithstanding, when you just think about the, the way it's put, do unto others, right? When you, and, and ask your, even this is, is parasitic on a Christian worldview. When you say do unto others, wh when you talk about others, what fits into that category? It doesn't apply to, for example, pieces of furniture, right? Uh, so when you begin to peel back that onion of what, what we assume goes into that category of others, mm -hmm. what you find at its root is a kind of, well, Judeo-Christian notion of human beings made in the image of, God, image of God, and that's to whom the others applies, uh, as, as is commonly understood. So I, even there, I think it's, it's parasitic yeah. on, a, on a worldview that um, Harris would deny. And I don't know how the golden rule fits into an evolutionary perspective. I mean, if we are just all in competition with each other. Yeah. I mean, it really... It's not so much I should do unto others as I would have done to myself. Rather, I should do what I can to advance myself. And my tribe. And my tribe yeah. and diminish others who compete with me. Yeah, ultimately, it's a kind of 
in, in one sense, a kind of pragmatism. It's a doggy dog. Yeah, and, yeah. and you, you're, you're doing it because, not because there's some intrinsic moral good in the act itself or in the intentionality behind the act, but because it, it helps promote the species. It yeah. helps to advance the situation, right? Yeah. Like, so that's, um, I, I don't know that that, it's certainly not what has historically been meant by the word moral. Yeah, yeah. Um, this next clip that I wanted to play, uh, my coworker who, like I said, is a big Sam Harris fan, he said that this is the, like, this is the meat of it. He told me, go to, you know, minute 45. And when I listened, I was like, yeah, this is, this is the meat of Harris's argument. So I'm going to play this section where I think Harris tries to develop his understanding of how we get to morality. All right, here we go. Different ways to talk about morality with respect to our scientific understanding of ourselves. One is what you just referenced, this, this biological, evolutionary, descriptive story of how we got here. You know, why is it that we're the sort of apes that feel this, these sorts of ways about social interactions, say, right? And, and, and why is, is, is our moral thinking anchored to those uh, properties? Then there's a completely separate question, which is the question that, that interests me morally, which is, given what we are, given where we are right now, what is possible for us? What, how good could human life be? And what are the principles of you know, neurobiology and everything else, economics and sociology and genetics, uh, anything that can be brought to bear to change human experience? What are the, the, the principles whereby we can navigate in the space of all possible experience and experience better and better lives and a, and a better and better world. And so that's, and that's, that is a very different question because it, it, it presupposes, just on its face, that we have to, most, most of our job is to fly the perch that has been prepared to it. Right, and I think you and I agree on this, but I'm not sure why. Okay, so here are the, I think, the two big questions that, that I have. One is, where does your concept of the good come from? And why is it universal? Um, and two, you just spelled out sort of your differentiation from the, the sociobiological explanation for morality that we evolved over time and that our brains are evolved to perform certain tasks and we sort of naturally came to a, a level of morality. But you're not a believer in free will. So, what, so when you talk about reason uh, and you talk about you know, the importance of reason, you and I fully agree on this, but my question is that as a neuroscientist, if we are just pure material and we're just a bunch of neurons firing outside of our own control, obviously, because every cause, every effect has a cause. If it's just things happening, yeah. then why should we value reason? Does it matter that we value reason? Uh, because we can't control whether we value reason anyway. Uh, are these conversations kind of pointless? Because no, what, no, uh, yeah, yeah. or, and then back to the first question, how exactly does reason play into the good? Is that just a vague term for a particular system of neurons that convinces another particular set of neurons? Yeah, so that, um, well, I'm going to hit play in a second there, but I just want to pause and so now uh, Shapiro has set up the the major question of the of the debate is okay so yeah where does the good come from and how does that make sense if we're all just a bunch of random neurons firing right so I don't know if you had a comment about that Dylan or just hit I could just say we can see what Harris's response is yeah well I mean <clears throat> go ahead and hit Harris's response and then we'll come back to okay it. here we go right right. So two questions there. What what is right. the foundation of value and, and morality specifically, and how does free will or its absence interact here? So I mean, so the foundation for me is 
and this is where this connects to other questions where we our intuitions probably divide. I mean, the questions about you know what is the meaning of life, what is the purpose of life. Those are questions that people ask, where religious people, uh, by and large, feel like you need an answer. Like there's a, there's a there's a meaning shaped hole in the world, and we should fill it. Um, and I, given how I th view things, think it's the wrong question. But what, what I see us as having is an opportunity. Like we we are in a circumstance where based on the minds we have, there is a range of possible experience. And we don't, and the horizon goes in both directions to the very, very bad and the very, very good. And we don't quite know how bad things can get, but based on what we know, close, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we know they can get far worse than we ever want to touch. And so it is with the good. We don't know how good things can get. Um, and yet we know the general direction where we want to head. So we, we know that if the world becomes more and more characterized by love and joy and creativity and compassion and insight and uh, fun, and we know that's all, that whole suite of, of and we could, we could, you could list that, list those characteristics uh, as long as you want, but there's a, a kind of jewel with a thousand facets that we want more of as conscious entities. And there's a there's a, a far darker jewel with as many facets that we want far less of. And this this spectrum admits of seeming paradoxes, which are, you, you, we could both point to occasions where suffering has led to something good, right? There's a silver lining to certain kinds of pain, right? Or you, you know, if you want to become a Navy SEAL and, and experience all the empowerment that comes with that, you have to go through the, the hell of becoming a Navy SEAL, and that's a test and a trial, and um, and yet there's a massive silver lining for people who come out the other side of that. So, And yet, if you could sample a person's experience in each moment through that ordeal, it might be indistinguishable from torture, right? So but so that's just to say that the, the, the frame around which we put certain sensory experiences matters, right? If I tell you that, you know, the pain in your biceps is because you've been lifting weight so much and you're making so much progress, uh, you know, you, you'll feel one way about it. If I, if I said to an identical pain, well, you actually unfortunately have arm cancer. It's a very rare <laughs> cancer, but you've got it, right? You'd be, you would feel the, uh, the suffering attendant to that. So, uh, but all of this, these are all statements about what it's like to have a human mind. And, and again, these are, I view us as having a navigation problem. And the reason why I feel like there's a foundational claim here that need not even be argued for, that is far more... Uh, defensible than a claim about revelation or anything else so you, 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 where you might tr try to anchor morality, is that uh, all I need is the acknowledgement that if we, if we imagine a, a universe where every conscious mind suffers as much as it can for as long as it can, with nothing good ever coming up, but there's no silver lining. So we just have a, we have a perfect hell that has been designed for every possible conscious mind, right? I call that the worst possible misery for everyone, right? That's bad. If the word bad is going to mean anything, it applies there, right? Now, if you're going to say it doesn't apply there, if you're going to say, well, yeah, that's kind of bad, but there are things that are worse, I don't know what you're talking about. Because, I, because by definition, this is the worst possible misery for everyone, right? So as long as you are going to acknowledge that other states of the universe are better than that, right? Then, then you've given me my continuum of better and worse. You're making a very so. I'll pause right there. So, it seems like the argument that Harris is making, and he goes through a few analogies: arm cancer, things like that. 
uh, of how suffering can lead to uh, some kind of uh, benefit at the, on the other side, that whole silver lining aspect, which, by the way, is interesting because, again, what he's saying is that there are there is suffering that has purpose and it has meaning, right? And I don't know how an evolutionary atheistic worldview can 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 account for that. You know, if it's all random and meaningless, then then there is no meaning for the suffering. But yeah. it's interesting is that in the Christian worldview, the ultimate suffering that ever took place had the greatest purpose. Hmm. Christ's suffering on the cross to save his people from their sins. Like the Christian worldview explains the existence of suffering with the silver lining. But I don't know how an atheistic worldview, when everything's random and meaningless and purposeless, uh, can do that. Well, I think, so again, I, I feel like he tries to ground it in a kind of utilitarian ethic, right? He says, given what we are and where we are right now, what's possible, right? How good could human life be? Yeah. Uh, and he wants to bring all these principles in. Um, you know, there's a jewel of a thousand facets that we want more of. There's a darker jewel we want less of. That is remarkably subjective. Those jewels are different jewels for different people. That's why I say the utilitarianism ends in a subjectivity. Because at the end of the... So here's an example. I, I, there, was a, there was an example. I actually think it might have been Sam Harris, but it might have been a different philosopher too, where he showed two pictures of two women. One of them was in full hijab, a Muslim woman, full hijab, full covering. And the other woman was in a bikini from like Sports Illustrated. And the, the chap said, well, if you look at these two women, I think we could say that um, neither of them have all of the happiness that they may want. Well, it's already his reading of happiness and what they should want that's informing his ethic. Yeah. You see, so th there's plenty of Muslim women who want to keep their hijab, thank you very much. <laughs> there are plenty of, of women out there who want to dress in a bikini. Thank you very much. I'm not saying one is good or one is bad. That's not the point. The point is it's his reading of what they should want that informs his ethic and that informs his definition of this jewel that we all want more of and this darker jewel that we want less but of. Do you think that uh, he's touching on the general revelation aspect that basically he is tapping into God's uh, he lives in God's world, and as a, as a as a creature in God's image, Harris can't avoid borrowing from from God to live in this world. You think that perhaps he's what he's uh, espousing could fall under that Romans two category, where yeah, he has a concept of old, of like that's bad. Oh sure, yeah. And he's got a concept of okay, that's good, like love and creativity. Absolutely. Now I, I don't think he can explain why those things are good. Right. Without, apart from God, because again, I, you know, who, how do you define, how do you get the, you need an objective standard hmm. to measure those things. Well, Shapiro but, called him on it, right? Shapiro yeah. said, he said, you're playing a trick where you propose a, sh you're, you're presupposing a shared definition of suffering. Yeah. So Sh Shapiro called him out on that. He's like, look, you can't account for what you're describing yeah. as a shared definition yeah. of suffering. And, and I would say though, that Harris's view that, okay, this is really, really bad. And this is, this is something good. It still ends up being not useful in the, in a sense that he he makes good and evil so broad 
that it's meaningless. Yeah. In that in that regard. But right? the reason it's so broad, you see, is because he's trying to he's trying to universalize the conception of the good. Yeah. He's trying to universalize the conception of the bad, and he even he gives the example later uh, of of two people putting their hands on a stovetop. That's right. Right, and he says, well, let's let's try to at least agree on the phenomenon that you know uh, hot stoves are not worth being touched. Right. So he says you have two people and he, he and he gives this example. He says, let's say by some stretch of the imagination, you have someone who has trained himself to derive pleasure from the feeling of a hot That's stove. Right. Yeah. Right. So he gives that example. And he says, so Harris's re- response to Ben's point and really to my the point that I'm making, I think we're making is that you're subjectivizing the notion of the good and the bad when you do this. Harris's response to that is. Well, but we can explain how that got that way. You know, someone trained himself to feel a pleasure from touching a hot stove. But then Harris himself is espousing a kind of genetic fallacy. Just because you can explain a phenomenon, you can explain a person's uh, taste preference for, for Thai over Chinese or how a person got to like the feel of a hot stove and, and why that is different than the majority of people t- trying to touch hot stoves, mm-hmm. right? Just because you can explain how that got there doesn't justify the point. It doesn't, ju- doesn't, it doesn't help you weigh its goodness or its badness, right? Yeah. So, so again, I, I think at the end of the day, Harris is using language and concepts that are borrowed capital from a Christian worldview, including his appeal to the laws of logic yeah. and to morality. Yeah, I agree. Um, <coughs> the, uh, the next clip I wanted to jump to was, uh, let's see, it was, uh, uh, I was going to take a look at uh, minute number 59, which talks about the, uh, more about morality and the, and the idea of better worlds. Um, yeah. If you have another another spot you want to jump to, let me know. But uh, let's take a look at uh, what he says. And eventually, I do want to touch on a little bit what he says about free will towards the end of this discussion. An argument based on on evaluating those experiences. Okay, so uh, this is one of those episodes where it's just I'm going to be devastated that we don't have a second mm-hmm. hour to actually go into all of these issues well, we because we, we basically scratched the surface yeah. on all of this. But uh, sort of final parting question because we didn't even get into rationality free or free will yeah. exactly. Yeah. A couple places where I'm sure we have more disagreements. But, but I have a very short answer yep. to that piece. Perfect. So, so, okay, so, so go so, for it. So rationality, and I think I, said, I might have said this to you on stage at our event. Rationality is not a, the successful moments of reasoning are not examples where freedom of will is even tempting to, to ascribe. I mean, so so it's it's if I give you an argument, if you have, if you strongly believe one thing, and I give you an argument that persuades you, that just knocks down the row of dominoes in your mind, that leads you to think. Right. No, I, I understand your argument, that, which that, is that it's a naturalistic that, response yeah, to that, a reasonable argument. That, and you don't that, have any control over that. Well, you you don't have any uh, control over over any moment where you finally see the light. So I give you a chain of reasoning and, and, it, and it works, you would, that, that's a moment where you are changed by something extrinsic to your own volition. Right? So, uh, I do want to pause there. I, jumped, I, I picked the wrong clip. So we'll go back uh, and take a look more about what Harris said about uh, best possible worlds. But it's very interesting what he said there. I don't want to, we're not here to talk about free will and the, and the, and the, and the Christian concept of will. But he said that, in that moment, this is where I think reasons his God, because he said, when I present a reasonable argument or rationality to you and it convinces you, he made it clear, like you are changed by something extrinsic to yourself. 
Now, what does that sound like? That sounds like regeneration. That sounds like the Holy Spirit changing your heart, extrinsic to yourself as God's grace, changing your heart and causing you to believe this thing that you did not previously believe. And I only, so I wanted to bring out that clip. I wanted to save it for later, but we just did it now. That's fine. To basically show that, like, I think that's his religion. His religion is reason is God. Reason can save us. And it changes you. It's external to yourself and you have no control over over how it changes you. Yeah, and Shapiro's later going to say that reason can be manipulated is basically oh, what yeah, he's he going to come back that. with. Yeah. And, and, and he's right, of course. But but this is, like, I, I know I've said it before, but this is the million-dollar rub. Like, here, Harris is clearly demonstrating he believes that there are laws of logic. It sounds like he thinks they're universal. It sounds like he thinks they're invariant. and But they're not material. Like, the law of logic is not just a convention. So here's the question. How does Harris, on his worldview, have laws of logic, right? No one has universal experience of laws. No one's tried every possible instance of it, right? They don't, they don't, they're not just going with the constantly changing nature of the world. Harris wants to use the laws of logic, but in so doing, and this is the key, he is borrowing from the Christian worldview. In the Christian worldview, Laws of logic that he's appealing. I'm not saying he's not logical. He's very logical. My point is, by using logic, he's borrowing from my world. In the Christian worldview, right, we can make sense of the laws of logic because they're, because God is himself. We, we are to think God's thoughts after him. We're not to contradict ourselves because that's lying. It's contrary to the character of God, right? God, he, with the presence of God, we, we can have a, an immaterial universal, invariant, abstract concept, and the laws of logic reflect the thinking of God. Mm-hmm. Does, does that make sense? So yes. It, it's, you, you cannot derive the kind of, you can't explain or justify the very rationality you're using. There's a story where, um, the, of, of course, the chap I'm thinking of is uh, Cornelius Van Til. Mm-hmm. There's a story where uh, Van Til, who was a Christian uh, theologian and, and philosopher, he was sitting on a bus one day. And he sees from a distance uh, a little child playing on her, I think it was her father's lap, right? And they're sitting across the way. And she's sitting on his lap and having a good old time. She reaches up and she hits her dad in the face. Uh-huh. Just hits him in the face. And, and, and Van Til makes his point. That, you know, she couldn't hit him in the face if she weren't sitting on his lap. <laughs> You, you, you can't make these uh, – tr- you can't try to craft syllogisms that are building up some kind of uh, philosophy of the good or the bad without depending on a rationality or an intelligibility or an order behind the universe in the first place. So, yeah. th- and, and so, you know, Ben will ask him a little bit later in the interview – uh, why should we value reason? And, yeah. you know, I kind of wanted to ask instead, how do you account for reason? How do you account for it? Yeah. And laws of logic. Now, we're, we have, we're running low on time here. Um, did you, I don't necessarily need to go back to that clip I wanted to play. I mean, I don't know if you think that uh, it was about uh, multiple, it was like, like the pill to end sadness. He had an analogy about that. I don't know if you wanted to go back to that uh, that section. We can. We can. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll just play it here. You know, we'll go a little over time today. So, um, yeah, so a little, a little longer uh, podcast today. Let's see what he has to say. Minds are the way they are. So the, 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 the macro question for me is, 
given all the minds as they are, what, where, where should we want to go, both individually and collectively? And there, there are multiple, there, there may be multiple right answers to this. It's not that there's just one sort of life that is the best possible life. There's a range of different lives that, given a million years to talk about it, we might not be able to dis distinguish which is better or worse. Like, you, you know, is, is Chinese food better than Thai food, right? Like, like there's a range of differences there which, are, which don't matter for better or worse, it's just different, right? And, and yet, at the end of the day, if you really preferred one and I really preferred the other, we could find some reason why that's the case. I mean, well, you might be a super taster of certain tastes on your, you know, so, so genetically. This, so but, but, but then it's still coherent to ask, should we, like, if, if, I, if, if we could really intrude in the brain and change our intuitions about better and worse, right? If I could change your sense of the rightness of certain actions or the wrongness, we could make this additional, we could ask this additional question of whether that would be good because that would be a new way of navigating the space. And this brings you to your brave new world question. So like, if it's possible to, now let's say we had a, a cure for sadness, right? And this, this is an example I've used before where you, um, we have a pill that perfectly cancels the feeling of, of grief, say. So, you're, so at what point in the, after the death of a loved one would you want to take this pill, right? And the answer might be never. And you would have a reason why you know, that was the case. Uh, but you could imagine someone who's just so destroyed by the experience of grief that they just can't get their life back on track. Everyone in their life is worried about them. They're, you know, on the virtue of suicide. At a certain point, you'd say, well, let's just give you this pill and just see if we can you know, bring a little daylight in there, even if you were against the, you, using right, it for yourself, sure. right? Uh, but presumably, you wouldn't want to take it 30 seconds after your kid was run over by a bus. You know, you just see this, this, this the worst thing that's ever happened in your life happen, and then you just pop this pill and you're, you, you don't feel anything, you know, one way or the other about it, right? You're ready to go to Starbucks, right? That would be, that would be a, a complete uh, fragmentation of who you are with respect to the love you feel or felt for your child, right? Like, what, what does loving your child mean if upon, uh, immediately upon his or her death, you, you want to cancel feel, your right? grief and you feel great, right? So... So we don't know what, it'd be hard to find the right answer, but, and you know, this, and this kind of thing is very likely coming, by the way, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's very likely we will one day have a cure for grief, right? And we'll have to figure out how to use it, and there will be wrong ways to use it. But I think what we want, I think the intuition that, that causes you to ask this question about Aldous Huxley and the Brave New World is that we, we have a, we're right to want to be anchored to reality in some sense. And if we, and if we were ever faced with a, an opportunity of, just uploading ourselves into a simulation where just the world is a video game and nothing nothing is real, right? So like that our, our states of happiness are totally divorced from the reality of our lives, right? And our actual relationships and the conscious experience of other people, that would be a bad thing, right? And yet we could imagine a circumstance of maximizing pleasure in a way that's divorced from reality. And that's an interesting argument to have ethically because I think that there is, I think our intuitions about that could change to some degree. And I think that there are ways in which we are already in something very much like a simulation that's not, I mean, like the, the, to talk about what, what is real in this context mm -hmm. is interesting. Uh, but I share, I share your bias here. I share mm -hmm. the sense that there are versions of brave, you know, pure pleasure, brave new world futures where everyone's a, her a heroin addict, perfectly medicated. That's not good, right? And, and I think, but I think you can, you can adjudicate that based on 
other possible experiences in the landscape of all possible experiences that are clearly better. And, and you would make an argument based on, on evaluating those experiences. So Clearly better to whom? Yeah, and by what standard? Yeah, like, I mean, for, for some people, that, that you, you look at uh, people who, you know, I, I've met pl plenty of folks who have wrestled with drug addiction. And one of the refrains that I hear commonly from such folks is that they there is a turning to drugs because reality is so bad. You know, Harris has come back to that as well. You know, if you, you can imagine the range of possible human experiences where, you know, this person might experience uh, more happiness than they otherwise would feel if, yeah. you know, had they been perfectly medicated. Well, not without controlling all of the external variables in that person's life, you can't. Because in that person's life, you know, maybe they're – their parents, uh, you know, neglected them or, you know, maybe they're... Uh, they had a horrible life. They had a horrible life, right. So if you can't control for those outside variables, then, you know, you're, you're not really going to be able to turn this person's life around. Like, this is the thing. There is a universalizing of the concept of the good and of the concept of the bad that is assumed to be shared. And it's not. And that's, you know, it's, it's similarly with the, dr the drug addiction and, you know, if we we're all perfectly medicated heroin addicts. <laughs> to his point. And he says, well, that's not good because, you know, this person could, in theory, have a better range of experience. Well, according to whom? Yeah, maybe. But I, yeah, I don't know what, I don't know why he thinks it's, see, again, I think, I mean, as a person made in God's image, he recognizes the, he recognizes the importance of grief and of grieving for a loss of a loved one and how there can be some value in that. And like he even says, like he thinks it'd be bad to like pop a pill. As yeah, soon why? As you see. Exactly, that's the question. Like as soon as you see your child die, pop a pill, and you don't care anymore. You go to Starbucks. I was like, well, in a in a in a random, meaningless, purposeless universe, why is that a bad thing? Yeah. I mean, if you could become more productive to society by not grieving, yeah, he then said maybe you should take that pill. Like I don't know why he values because there's some kind of intrinsic good he talks about with being connected to reality, um, but why? Yeah. It says whom? I mean, some some people might not want that because their yeah. reality is so bad. Yeah. So so in other words, it's already his understanding of what people should want that's informing this. Now, from a Christian perspective, I, mean, I would agree with him. Taking that pill right when your child dies would be a bad idea. It'd be a very bad idea. It'd be a very bad idea. But we can account for that. We can, exactly. Exactly. Because of, because of the Christian worldview. Because of, because God is real. God yeah. is the creator of this world, and He calls us to live in a world that is the world which He created. That is real. Yeah, and, and death is real as a result. Death of is sin. real, and and all of the opportunities to 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 celebrate life in God's glory are real, um, and so we're to live in the real world that God has set for us. Which is why you know it's 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 largely unhelpful. You know if we're just uh, sitting here daydreaming all day, not being productive, and we're just imagining ourselves as, you know, some, I don't know, superstar on Broadway, and we're just, you know, daydreaming in the middle of a class. Yeah. Or, or in the middle of the workday. Yeah. You know, why is that unhelpful? Why is that bad? Well, from a Christian perspective, it's because we need to look at what's real. Now, you may have opportunities to go pursue those kinds of things, but do it in a way that's tangible. Yeah. All right? Yeah. Because this is a tangible world that God has yeah. made. Yeah. Before we close, there's one final clip I wanted to play that uh, kind of, I think, to me, summarizes and demonstrates that Harris's God is, is reason. 
so it's only like a minute long. So uh, let me just go ahead and play that. For me, reason is the only thing that, as we talked about at the top of this, it's the only thing that, that takes us out of who we are and scales to some universal point of view. It's, it's, it's not, it's, it's, you're not reasoning. If you're actually reasoning, what you're arriving at is not just true for you, it's true for anyone who could be in, it's true from essentially above on, on any given topic. You know, it, it, it does offer the view from above or the view from uh, any possible perspective or at least it takes in the into account the effect of perspective. You know, so it's like if if you know again, reason is and, and scientific rationality generally is the thing that explains why you know if you're colorblind, you don't see colors the way I do, right? And that's it, but it's it's not that we can't get at what's actually real. We can we because we can explain divergences of opinion, it's, and and otherwise you just have those divergences. So I wanted to play that clip because he. I think he even, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I almost imagine him saying that reason is what provides the God's eye view. Hmm. Like he says, it scales, it provides that universal above view. And he's trying to get to objective truth. He's trying to get to this universal truth. He's, in a way, he's trying to climb Jacob's ladder to get to, to get to God. And for him, reason is his God. Reason is the only thing that provides objective, uh, universal God's eye perspective on on humanity. Um, but again, I, I think that he, uh, earlier in the, in the podcast, he said we have a navigational problem. We have a navigation problem. So um, it's kind of like, well, how do you, how can you have it both ways? You know, if you think that reason is, what gets us to objective truth, but yet you recognize we have a navigation problem. We don't all reason rightly. We don't, we don't reason well. Um, what is that? That's the result of sin, but he doesn't, he doesn't believe that. So I'm not sure how he accounts. How, how can he account for us having a navigation problem and us being able to reason? I mean, think of it this way. If you, if we could reason ourselves to the universal good, basically if we could save ourselves, then, then that's it. That's the solution. We can do it on our own. But if we have a navigation problem, then how can we save ourselves? How could we reach, you know, reach the ultimate, reach the universal on our own? We would need an outside external being or force, being person to fix our navigation problem. Yeah. So, I mean, if you, you were going to ask Harris, like, how do you know you're navigating rightly? Right. I mean, he might say, well, you know, we can use reason and rationality he says it's the only thing that scales. I mean, we can, for example, you know, maybe we can we know that these things work. Right. You can see the syllogism. And if the dominoes topple in a way that's logical, then you have to yeah. reach that conclusion. But what we have to ask is when he's applying that standard of rationality, why is it that it applies repeatedly in a, con in a contingent realm of experience, right? In a world that's random, it's, in a world that's not subject to personal order, why do the laws of logic and the rationality that he espouses continue to have these kind of success generating features? And if he says, well, you know, this is how we've always seen it, you know, all electrons have always repelled. And, you know, you say, well, have you experienced all electrons repelling? Of course not. But then they'll quickly add, well, 
you know, and I think he makes a similar point. It, you know, it's always been that way in the past. If it changes tomorrow, that'll make the front pages of the news. If you found an instance of electrons that did not repel, it'd be on the, like if you found a theory that overturned uh, evolutionary theory, it'd be on the front pages of the news. Every scientist wants to overturn evolutionary theory because they want to improve it somehow. But the the issue is that's not an answer to the question. The question is, what justifies our moving forward on the expectation that the future is like the past? If you say it's always been that way, that just that just begs the question. Here, here's what I think is really going yeah. on, right? I think at the end of the day, um, Harris uses the laws of logic because in his heart of hearts, he he knows there's a God. Well, he can't avoid it. He cannot avoid it. God made Sam Harris, and God reveals himself through the use of reason. So one way that we know Sam suppresses the truth about God, Romans 1, Romans 1, Romans 1 yeah. is that he continues to use the very reason and rationality that's borrowed capital from the God who made him. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, that's the thing that is, you know, kind of, kind of tragic about the whole thing. And it's like, oh, man, like... Yeah. Dude, you're, he, he's such a smart dude, and he's yeah. so thoughtful. I'm like, man, <laughs> yeah. if, if only you, you were able to account for the, for, the, for the things you're espousing, it would be so much intellectually richer. Um, so, yeah. anyway. Well, I, I guess with that, I mean, actually, that was, that was fun. No, that I, was good. I, I, enjoyed I really that. enjoyed this, and we were able to get through it all. I mean, we went over a little bit today, uh, but... Uh, and I would say, you know, look, if, if somebody else. else out there was, who has some follow-up questions to any of the things that we've talked about here today or... Or other videos that you guys want us to comment on. Yeah, that's a great idea. You know, definitely uh, reach out. We'd love to get the feedback. You can reach us at twoguysinabible.podcast at gmail.com. That's the number two. You can also reach us at Twitter at twoguysinabible, facebook.com forward slash twoguysinabible, and twoguysinabible.org. Mm. Uh, once again, this has been your weekly conversation on theology, culture, and God's word. Yeah. Uh, and... Thank you so much for yeah. tuning in. Yeah, no, thank you. Hopefully we can do this again sometime. Another, another uh, comment on the video. And, and thank you to uh, Sam Harris and Ben Shapiro for sitting down and having that conversation yeah, again. It was helpful. very thoughtful, very helpful. We're praying for you guys. Praying for you guys. Yeah. All right. All right. Thanks. God bless. God bless.